Welcome to Partnering Leadership, conversations with leading influencers in the greater Washington, D.C. region and global thought leaders, helping you align better with your purpose, grow professionally with meaning, and have a greater impact. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at PartneringLeadership.com. Now here's your host, Mahan Tavakoli. Welcome to Partnering Leadership. I'm really excited this week to be speaking with Chorito Kavan. She's the founder and chairperson of the Board of Creative Associates International. For more than four decades, Chorito and Creative Associates have had a significant influence all across the globe, specifically focusing on education and in post-conflict environments. The stories are magnificent. I feel like I could have spoken to Chorito for hours, but there are lots of leadership insights in this conversation. Listen to it. You will also hear about James Brown, Nelson Mandela, and get some perspective from Chorito that is unique to the kind of leader that she is. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure to tell at least one other person about the podcast. Get them to listen to it. You can send them to their favorite app, but the easiest thing is to send them to partneringleadership.com where there is a link to 15 plus apps that carry the podcast. Now, here's my conversation with Charito Kravat. Charito Kravat, welcome to Partnering Leadership. And I can't tell you what an incredible honor it is for me to be interviewing you for this podcast. Oh, you're so wonderful. It is, uh, Charita, for all these years, I have seen your contributions, not only to the greater Washington community, but to the global community, and can't wait to hear a little bit about your leadership journey, your experience, so the listeners can benefit from it. So to start us off, I, I do believe that where we grow up has an impact on who we become. Whereabouts did you grow up, and how did that impact the person that you became? Well, it's a beauty because I'm so old. That is wonderful to remember years, years, years back. <laughs> I was born in Bolivia, in pretty much the highlands of Bolivia. And my parents were kind of the, the old-fashioned landowners. And so we used to go usually from one, one farm to another. And as a child, I just remember like a very, very, very large extended family and the extended family always included all the support that a farm requires. So in many ways, I've always felt like it's a very special person because we were always with lots of people. When I was about, I think, eight or nine, the Civil War started in, in Bolivia. And um, my parents were kind of a, in between that process because they, they were believers that land ownership belonged to the people in the, the indigenous people. On the other hand, they had a lot of land. <laughs> so there was a lot of, of tension and controversy, which made my parents not be in total relationship with the rest of the, fam the closer family. And so my father was very much a, a change maker at that time. And so we enjoyed the, the process of understanding that people belong to the land and the land is not owned by people. And it was something very special to me at that time because I was a little one. But we went through those experiences of civil unrest and you know the, the, the fears of relatives disappearing or dying out of war. 
and also kind of having to um, be sometimes afraid of all kinds of crises. And so then my family moved from Bolivia to Argentina. And when we moved from Bolivia to Argentina, um, I remember my, my close family, we were 32. We were 32 in one plane from, from Bolivia to Argentina. And still with me, because my family was also, you know, the nannies and all of that. That was the family. And we, we stayed in Argentina for, I think, about three months in a little hotel. And we were kind of in hiding. And it was just wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Charito, it takes someone like you to take what for most people would seem as a traumatic experience and see a wonderful element to it. So this relocation first to Argentina and sort of the turmoil that you and your family were facing in Bolivia, how did that shape the woman that you eventually became? You know, the biggest issue was that my parents and all my so-called close family really made us understand that whatever actions you have, that's whom you are. And so it's very important to be, be kind, be loving, be respectful. And the other part that my father always used to insist is you can lose your land or you can lose your money, but you can't lose your education. And so that then it became a big uh, issue that it, no, matter, no matter where you are in life, you have to do both, have enough knowledge. And secondly, it doesn't matter if you were well off or not, you have to be self-sufficient and be able to have a job. And at that time, um, I mean, this is really way, way, way back when women didn't even think about working. But my dad always um, insisted that I had to learn enough as to be able to be on my own. I was the darkest one, not only in my family, but I also was definitely the darkest one in the city. We were right across from the what's called Casa Rosada, which would be like the White House. So when I would go and walk and play with the pigeons, because the Casa Rosada had just a lot of pigeons in the front, I was definitely different. I was not only super dark and tiny, kind of sturdy, indigenous, like with muscles. But I was also happy. And I think that was kind of a, early in the process, just to know that being different was not either good or bad. It was different. And my parents used to, my mom especially, used to make a big issue about how our ancestry was from Spain. And they used to have these very special documents about how we were from so-and-so from Spain and, you know, how the the family trees. And and then I would go to the mirror and look at my little cheekbones and my nose and I say, hey, (laughs) I'm as Indian as it comes. And, And that kind of made me both understand the issue of being not only different, but also being a minority within a minority. Argentinian people at that time, they were very much Europeans because they had emigrated after the war. So it was not only a very European society, but it was also very, sadly now, very classist. And because of my, um, how indigenous I was, I belonged in one group. And because how so-called my, my family and were so cultural, I belonged in another one. And I've um, always felt very comfortable being the bridge, which is probably, as of today, that's the essence of myself. I, I feel really comfortable with myself, but I also, my world is my bigger than just myself. And so that's, that stayed with me. 
you have made great contributions as a bridge builder. But before we get to that career part of it, there's something that I read about you translating and chaperoning James Brown. What is that all about? Oh, that's fun. When I first came to the state, I came in the United States. I came as an exchange student. My, my father sent me as exchange student for about three months in the New Jersey area. And then when I went back and then I went to school and I then came back, I had a, a, a job. My, my, my father was wonderful. He figured out that if I was going to be here, um, he had, at that time, there was this ways in which you got your, your residency by, I guess, investing and then um, by being a student. So I knew, I knew really well that I could go to school, but it didn't matter what my parents could provide me and money was just not enough. And so I, without my, I would say without my father's blessing, <laughs> I found a job in New York. One of the neighbor, one of my, the neighbors that my father knew, and he encouraged me to take this job. And the, yeah, it was, it was in New York, right on 6th Street, right in the middle of, of New York. And I used to go from New Jersey to New York every day. And m- the main reason why I they offered me that job is one because I was very proper and I would not take any gifts or did not curse. <laughs> and I knew English and Spanish. So my job was whenever the different stars, I guess from Hollywood or other people would come, I took them around in New York. And at some point there was this big issue that someone very special was going to be around for more than a few days. I think it was a couple of weeks or so. And so they asked me if I would do that. And I was either too ignorant or too silly. I did not know how special this guy was. He was just this big guy that cursed all the time. (laughs) And so my job was wherever, whenever he would come to to the place, then I would take the responsibility to walk him all over and... Translate because there were a few times, I think they were from Latin America. They were mainly, I think, Cubans and Spain for the record world. And I was not into it. So I, I must say, it's, uh, ignorance is blessed because he was, I didn't get into an awe from him. And he used to make fun of me because he, he was so um, kind of pursued by everybody. And I would just do my job. And he used to make fun of me. <laughs> and eventually I realized that. The, the more sisterly I behave, the more I could give him directiveness so he could be on time and he could do what the job called for. And so I did that for a while. And he was a very special guy. He was really rowdy. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you balanced him well, Chimito. <laughs> yeah, because I think he used to say, who the hell is this girl again? <laughs> Everybody was just kind of... Um, I would call it a dog, but you know, he had followers all over. And I would just kind of make him do whatever he needed to do. And my boss's boss used to kind of make fun of me because they would just rely on me that I would make him be on time. Just I don't think it was his characteristic. <laughs> so here you are, this young woman with this wonderful experience, varied experience. What did you want to be at that point in your life when, when you had career aspirations? What did Charita want? Well, you know, that one to me was just kind of, I guess, like if you work in the supermarket and you get paid by the hour so you can get gasoline. 
I saw that job as that. But what I really wanted from early in the process was to be able to be a, and calling it a teacher might be a limited. I always wanted to be involved in, in learning and, and the idea of providing learning and opportunities to others. So from the very beginning, I had that, that experience. And the United States was perfect for me because it was during the period, of, first of all, Head Start was being initiated. And it was also the time where I felt really connected, not only on issues of poverty but through school I had a, to be able to do some uh, voluntary work or in, an internship and I was given the opportunity to go to Hoboken. Hoboken now in New Jersey is very fancy but at that time it was totally dilapidated and, and um, you know cross-culturally it was one of those experiences where to me poverty was you don't have shoes and you don't have refrigerator but when I went to Hoboken kids had cars and shoes and refrigerators so it was the understanding that I got from the levels of poverty, which is what I call the poverty of the soul, which is more corrosive than the lack of money or economic means. When you feel that you're already unable to, to make it through, the possibility you're defeated. So the possibility of success becomes much more complicated. That was a good learning for me. Because my faith and my commitment to be sure that those kids had to have a better life, and it was not it was not economic only and exclusively economic poverty. It was a whole systemic issue that needed to be resolved. So I've learned a lot about how it's not just the, the schooling component, but it's the difference of schooling and education. Education includes a lot more than, than schooling, where you actually learn something and integrate. And, and, and then you are part of, of a system in which you are able to apply your, your learnings and, and to give back. I found myself comfortable being, being in that world. And uh, since that time, that became my, my calling. So you picked up that calling in Hoboken, New Jersey. What gave you the idea to take this mission of educating, especially young girls around the world, uh, worldwide? By that time, I had this great joy of the, my boyfriend that had been in my exchange student time when I was 15. By that time, we, we got married. So um, he was um, going to go to school in Wisconsin or, at, or in Massachusetts. And it was too cold. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember looking at the map and saying, all right, if you're going to go to school, we're going to go to a place that is warm. And so we looked at the different places where he could get scholarship or a good school for, for his PhD in economics. So American University was both a warm place and international. So I, we came here. And I had this wonderful opportunity to work at the University of Maryland one more time in, in issues of education. And then because of my um, ability to, to do both cross-cultural learning and, and translation Actually, in Georgetown, there was a wonderful dean, Dr. Lado, who was the dean of the um, School of Languages and Linguistics. He hired me to be part of a team, to be a part of a research team on, on how children learn best. And because I'm dyslexic, I sometimes am a dumb person. So at one level, 
I, it's, it's hard for me, like a bumblebee, I go from one thing to another. But in another one, I can make connections and most of the time people go through the steps of logic and they don't get to the level of connectivity that I do. So that research allowed me to know that I had much more ability to learn something that my learning preference was more auditory than, than the ability to read. And, you know, it was, I was lucky because since that time, I've learned I didn't have to over waste my time on trying to read carefully every word. And so I learned to always find the most knowledgeable people and learn from them. So my memory and my ability to listen and to connect information comes from auditory learning. And, and you know, that's a gift that I was given because throughout the years in the world that I lived, where mainly men that were the, the leaders in both in the region and in, in the world, I searched for them and the things they were doing, and I listened to them and I asked questions. And so I, I did a lot of learning that way. And there was also, I think, the time where men needed to figure out that their roles were changing, and many of them started to understand that women were supposed to be part of a more equal society. And these men had daughters or wives that at home, they were giving them a hard time. So they could connect with me, and I could connect with them and figure out how they could be greater men. In Washington, where the issue of power, sometimes it's so isolating. Some of them were having a hard time sharing those things from home, and they could share things with with me and I totally appreciate it and learn from them. Well, you actually built on whatever people chose to share with you, Cherito, to share a lot with people globally. Now, I know Creative Associates has had a presence all across the globe from Central and South America to conflict regions in Africa and Middle East. What would you, as you reflect on your career of building this wonderful organization with a wonderful legacy, what do you see as a couple of pride points of impact of you and Creative Associates? First of all, I I think as time goes by, that sense of that I had about myself that um, I couldn't do anything alone by myself. I'm just sharing with you my dyslexia, inability to do basic things, The, the opportunity to identify myself on some common issues with other women that we can work together. So that team building became critical to me. And so my process of leadership, instead of doing it alone, was always finding those who are the best and we can have a common common goal or common mission and then go for it. It always allowed me to do more than I could remotely do myself. And so that's something that became very early in the process, important to me. Even before Creative Associates, the Ford Foundation used to fund us doing some work in the Washington metropolitan area, in which connecting African-American teachers, which at that time they were called Black. Luckily, now they're called Black again, (laughs) but for different reasons, but now Black are Black. (laughs) Teachers who were part of the private schools, who tended to be white women, very well-schooled and educated, and Black teachers that were very good teachers, but did not have graduate degrees. And so part of my job was to be part of that team that identified some of those African-American or Black teachers and be able to go to graduate school and be what was called Master of Masters. And that was a wonderful 
time for me because one more time I was able to do part of that connecting world. And I had a wonderful, both boss who was uh, just terrific. At that time, it was very, for Washington metropolitan area, the region was very intense. There were fires, there were all kinds of really stressful moments. In, in the same way that we're feeling right now, that, that stress of protests, and you don't know if the, if the issues will become much more virile and violent. But being part of that sense that either we can be angry or we could do something both for ourselves and others became, became my mantra. And since that time, every day when I wake up, I, I do pray that may God allow me to be able to do something both for myself and for others. And I became useful if I can be myself doing something for others in which they can do better. And so that, that became very important. And in, in Washington, uh, as it is around the world, at that time, women were very limited, both in their professions, but in their ability to feel a level of connectivity to a larger, not only a larger cause, but a, a larger business. So I never shied away from the risk of knowing that to, to do more, you have to have more so that you can have the resources to be able to plan and do more in the future. So that became the kind of the side of the entrepreneurial side that I have where I'm comfortable building for, for the mission, but also pursuing enough resources where I can have a larger impact. In at different times when the United States was in very difficult times, I call it proxy wars, but in Central America and other places, it was important to be sure that the United States was beyond just lethal aid, that we were able to provide some support. And I, I think I did beyond lucking out. We pursued those, those activities and we worked in areas where the combat was ongoing and our job was to work with civilian society so that they would, the kids would be safe, which is what I feel so strongly that no matter where in the world, we have to, the responsibility to make our children safe and um, then provide them with some way of on which schooling can provide a sense of normalcy, not only for the child, but for the community so they can plan for the future. Later on, when I think one of the greatest joys for me, this is a long time ago, but when the war in Nicaragua was ending, the Senate said that they would stop lethal aid, but they were going to provide support to the combatants. And there were all kinds of really fancy companies that were bidding. And, and we won this, this contract to be able to go to the mountains in Honduras and to bring the people who were there, bring them down to back to their communities. And when we went there, there were about 10,000 young people, which they were just extraordinarily disciplined. They had been fighting for so long. And, you know, when, I connected with them personally. We realized that most of these youngsters, they have been child soldiers. They knew life from death, but they didn't know how to read and write. And there was no greater joy in my life than in three months, we figured out a way in which all the discipline and all the learnings to be soldiers that they have gone through, from that to being able to read and write. And after three months, they... They could not only 
read and write, but they could pass tests and go through from first grade to third grade to fifth grade. That is absolutely <laughs> incredible, Chirito, because you established the pillars of what a normal society needs for these folks to be able to transition back into their communities, into their villages and cities. Yeah. And, you know, since that time, we literally became experts at that, knowing that for different reasons around the world, war exists. And so we can figure out where the next conflict will occur, but also the amount of young people and, and families, we could call them victims, but they are not. They're part of the society. How to be sure that they can continue either not only being educated, but that their lives could be at least harm. And it's been very special for us to get extraordinarily good experts who are knowledgeable from a scientific and, and, a, and a professional way, how to work through these issues. My role and our role at Creative is to be able to bring this extraordinarily expertise that they usually are in opposite ends of their thinking, their political thinking sometimes, but bring them together to be sure that the task occurs. So there will be people from retired from the military who know every possible issue about weaponry and others that come from the best teachers or the best social workers or the best workforce experts to figure out what to do. So while there is an ongoing conflict that we support those families or when the conflict is about to end, that we help everybody else to go through a transition so that they can have the opportunity to success. And then later on, it became clear that what makes you or us to be wonderful, wonderful, particularly if you're young, you want to change the world. So your skills at doing that are totally different than the skills of governance. And sometimes being angry at something gives you the impetus to change. But then once you get the opportunity for that change, you have to be ready for governance. And it became clear to us that at Creative, we can provide that kind of a support and identified some of the change makers, the leaders in, in different communities and support them not so much with the insurgency component, but really pretty much prepare them for the next leadership of governance. And that is just like a, an extraordinary opportunity that I find myself that I was blessed by being entrusted by both the U.S. government and many international agencies where we could um, be in different places in the world where it was clear that change needed to occur and was going to occur. I needed the change is positive and we actually exacerbate and shift that negative moment into a positive change where then governance can occur. And that's how I had the opportunity to when we were doing work in South Africa or in other places, to meet some of those extraordinary leaders who are well known in the history of change that they were good at throwing the bombs and they needed to be good at doing governance. And it requires different skills. So, so I understand, uh, mentioning South Africa, that you were also involved in the release of Nelson Mandela. Yeah. We were very lucky, uh, I would say more than that, but we, we were able to provide support to the leadership of the Black South Africa on governance issues. So they would prepare themselves to be able to be, uh, to be ready for governance. And 
throughout all those years, we were so involved in it that the different components of the leadership were prepared to be sure that it that shift occurred and uh, creative was part of that uh, that process. I still sometimes touch myself and say, am I lucky or what? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's wonderful because you had worked a lifetime to get to that point. Now, Charita, when I reflect on leadership, obviously you had to have magnificent leadership to grow your own organization, Creative Associates, but you've also seen and faced some of the toughest leadership challenges in bringing together communities uh, and groups that have been fighting over the years. So as you reflect on leadership advice, leadership lessons that you've learned based on these experiences, what thoughts and perspectives do you have on that? A a combination of um, issues that I think are important. I've learned that from from other wonderful leaders. But one is you, you have to be a commitment to change for a better world, not just for myself, or, but for others. The other one is you have to have skills for, to do that. You can't, you can't just wish it. And, and you, you have to also identify others who are willing to go through that journey with you. And at some point, both you have to trust them to be part of your journey and, they, and you have to build the trust from them that is that their journey will end up in a positive change. So it both it's skill based, it's planning, it's in being able to envision. I mean, when we talk about um, what what would happen to this country if there is if there's no change, or what will happen, you have to envision what it what it would be and the culture in which people live, and go for it. Sometimes it gets it gets scary. Other times, if you just know that that you're doing it for a larger cause, that that physical moment of stress becomes a physical moment of excitement that allows you to go to the next step. So I don't get frazzled by toughness. Um, you just know it's you know when when the blood goes all throughout you. Um, that's excitement. The same the same blood. Suffering that goes from anger and 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 fear, breathing, breathe out. Thank God that you're there, and keep on going. There have been sometimes in in the many years that I've been involved in this that you know sometimes you you know that you just lucked out the the shelling occurred like not in the front of the car but in the back of the car, <laughs> or some other times you know that you just lucked out that when people were not going to let you leave the the place. Somehow somebody else comes and picks you up in a truck and you have to trust that that truck doesn't have a, a bomb. You know, so there, there, are, there are moments where you're risking something, but it's always for a larger reason. And it's not kind of knowing that little balance. For me, it was somewhat exciting, but it was also sometimes difficult because my children, particularly when they were teenagers, they understood we were all together in this process. But sometimes the risk was such that I might not come back. And so knowing that that, that I was doing something that maybe was, like my pure loving mother-in-law used to say, it's not too much risk. <laughs> <laughs> you are a true example of a purpose-driven leader, Chirito. A lot of organizations now talk about the importance of purpose, whether organizationally or for the team or for the individual. 
you're a true example of a purpose-driven leader. And when you have that purpose clear in front of you, it gets you through the tough times too. I think I do. That, that's probably something that's in me. The other thing that I, in today's world is not so easy to talk about is the issue of faith. I, I have faith that both in my world, that God will support me in this process, but also that the universe is looking for this harmony and change. And you're, if you're part of that larger journey, and if your path is, is going through that, it's easier to go through complexities because you, you move on. Um, and part of leadership is also not to do it alone, but to bring others who are having a harder time walking through that path to come along with you. And so the idea of um, not only doing it with them, but giving them that encouragement, because so many of them are so much um, so better schooled and much more technically competent than I ever was. It's just at all. You know, sometimes that in today's world, there's these young women in, in their 20s, they know so much. And they're so eager to do more. So the idea for me is to be sure that we all together see a path in which we can have a good picture of what we can do. And, you know, um, at different times, we confronted things like young girls in in Afghanistan where they had no opportunity to do something. And uh, if we were part of those process of change, then these young girls, they did so much more. You know, the ambassador from Afghanistan now is a woman who was a a teacher, but she was also before a teacher. She was just a learner. And I remember that brilliant, well-spoken young person who now is the ambassador representing her country in in the United States. It's a great honor. You have planted many of those incredible seeds all across the globe, giving many of these young people and women opportunities to rebuild. So if I was to ask you sort of one last question and your perspective on When younger people come to you for leadership advice or maybe leadership resources or thoughts, what is the advice you have or what resources or thoughts do you share with them? I've always tried to help them trust themselves and also to get to know themselves. I think sometimes, particularly in today's world, we are so much bombarded with so much information that young people are always being pushed to emulate somebody else. And then sometimes from within, they have so much more to offer. So I have um, the great opportunity sometimes when they connect with me on these issues is, is that building that, that um, get to know your strengths. Also, you know, it, it's good to be impatient, but patience with impatience is that kind of little tension that comes to, to know that. The, the other part is skills are necessary but there's no perfection. Just go for it. Give it your best. And, and if you're not doing it alone, others will, will do things with you. And sometimes you will just not make it, so you get up and do it again. The, I, I do see more and more young people who are having the opportunity to envision larger world because not only have they traveled, but because of, of information now. What used to be a quiet issue, like, you know, having been involved in in Nigeria with the young girls that got kidnapped and then went back to the place that we were part of that process and, and helping them and seeing them, so that some of them really went back really, really damaged and, and building them back so that they themselves can become the leaders of other young women in Nigeria. It's just the joy so that whatever happened to them, 
they have to accept. They can't just hide it. But by accepting it, it's not their fault. They can do. They can do and be more for others. And it's been. I, I just. I just think that not only younger. I mean, my bias is towards girls. Okay. So, but I think it's not only young girls, but young people in today's world. They they have the opportunity to be part of a change, which they can have an impact because through social media and technology, and that know-how, with our support, they can do it. And I feel very strongly that that's our responsibility to help them to help them see that path. Chirito, I feel like I can go on for hours, which means I am going to definitely continue this conversation with you because each one of these magnificent stories of the impact you've had throughout your life on so many communities around the globe have lots of leadership lessons in them. I appreciate the time that you took to share some of those insights today with the partnering leadership community. Thank you very much for being part of this conversation, Chirito. Well, thank you. You're terrific. You know that, right? I'm sending you a kiss. Love you. Much, much love to you, Chirito. Thank you. Peace. See you. You've been listening to Partnering Leadership with your host, Mahan Tavakoli. For additional leadership insights and bonus content, visit us at partneringleadership.com.